interest in all the things we can do to optimize brain health and, we, and what we can do to reverse cognitive decline and to prevent cognitive decline, so incredibly common. And of course, even more that we've heard about this because of COVID-19 and the fact that so many people are getting brain fog with COVID-19. And the big concern is, will we see more cognitive decline in the future? So uh, Dan, could, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you first got interested uh, in uh, plasmalogens and how you ultimately got to the point of, of doing a trial on these? What, what first to put them on your radar? Well, thank you, Dale. Yeah, so my background is in synthetic organic chemistry and then my PhD is actually in psychiatric medicine, looking at the biochemical mechanisms of psychiatric disease. And so I've been involved in research from the get-go. And in the 1990s, when the genomics revolution was occurring and we were getting to the point where we could sequence entire genomes and then companies were generating cDNA arrays and they, they, you could sequence, you could understand all the genes of, a, of, a, of an organism and how that those genes get transcripted and, and applied. As a biochemist, the small molecules with the metabolites of the world, like the glucoses, which you know are the common, you know, the glucose in a fly and glucose in a plant and glucose in you and I are exactly the same. Yeah. But this is the biochemical molecules that are, are used in all the biochemical processes. We never had an ability to measure them comprehensively. So my first patented invention was on non-targeted metabolomics, being able to measure thousands and thousands of small molecules simultaneously. And we use that technology extensively in functional genomics, which is interesting with this whole mRNA thing, because that's what we did for many years looking at um, transcripts. And so as we applied this technology to the study of human disease, we started doing large clinical trial analyses in cancers and neurological disease areas. And we were studying Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. Um, a class of molecules showed up on this technology called plasmalogens. And I didn't really understand what they were at the time because they have a strange molecular formula. And we were measuring thousands and thousands of molecules, but these plasmalogens popped up. And um, my expertise is in biochemistry. And I really hadn't heard of these things either. So I seriously, I Googled the structure of these things to find out what they were. And, and now these things are, um, you know, and they're very important. We've known about them for about hundred years. So they're not a new thing. Like we've known about plasmalogens. We know how important they are. So children that are born with genetic mutations in the manufacture of plasmalogens don't survive. Either they have very, very severe um, dwarfism, neurological decline. Like there's several diseases of proximal biogenesis of children. And this is a very serious disease. So we know plasmalogens are obligate. We know that all the plasmalogens for the child comes from the mother. The, the child doesn't start making their own plasmalogens till several weeks after birth. And so early phase, like mother's milk in a colostrum stage has high levels of plasmalogens in them and then declines afterwards. And so children that are born very prematurely, they can have a disease called bronchial dysplasia. And this is caused by plasmalogen deficiencies. And so we've known this obligate nature of plasmalogens for human life for a long, long time. And we studied them early in the 60s for um, their immune regulators in terms of like radiation therapy and stuff like that. They, there's some classes of them in shark liver oil, for example. Um, but early stages of trying to modify plasmalogens have been incredibly unsuccessful. Like the base molecules, people might look it up called battle alcohol and chymal alcohol. These are the simple structures. So as a synthetic chemist, we started looking at designing molecules that could restore plasmalogen levels. This was back in 2000. So I, discovered these plasmalogens in 2006, did a whole bunch of patenting back then, and then developed structures and figured out how, what it takes to elevate plasmalogens. And then we started studying these things in um, neurological diseases. So neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. cancers. And so plasmalogens were critically important to the pathophysiology of these diseases. And like anything, when you find a biomarker, um, you wanna find out, is this just a symptomatic? Is this smoke? indicating some other fire, or is it actually part of the biochemical process? And typically you do that by trying to eliminate other causes of plasmalogen deficiencies. 
Okay, is it is the plasmalogen deficiency really linked to Alzheimer's and cognitive right. decline, or it's something else and it's just a biomarker? And you and reality is you can't remove it from the equation. Like when we do postmortem studies, large longitudinal studies, Rush University in Chicago measured just under nine thousand blood samples from thousands of people over sixteen years of their lives, and it shows up that these plasmalogens are really part of the causation pathway, and they're biochemically linked to the cholinergic neuron system, which is so when people people may hear of Aricept for Alzheimer's. Um, so we knew about the cholinergic system back in the 70s and studied a lot of work on that. And basically maintaining cholinergic function is the most proximate to cognition. And then plasmalogens are, are part of that. So that's how this all came to be. And then as you learn, what I really discovered was this decline in plasmalogens later on in life. That, so we have these, we've known about these plasmalogen deficiencies in children, but we kind of ignore people as they get older. And so this kind of, this plasmalogen deficiency in aging really came to be. And so now it's taken me 15 years to get this in fully into humans. So now for the first time in human history, in hundred years, this the, stuff, the data that we presented at Denver in the Alzheimer's conference, it's the first time in hundred years that we've been able to actually elevate plasmalogens. It's ridiculous because it's not a small number, 20 to 30% of your entire brain, of the lipids of your neuromuscular junction, your heart, your lungs, your kidney, the retina of your eye. We're not dealing with a small trace level metabolite. We're talking about a core composition your body has literally grams, pounds of plasmalogens in your body, okay? And the weird thing about them is when, when your body makes them, the last step in their manufacture creates this activity bond called the vinyl ether bond, which makes them unavailable from a dietary source. So you think, oh, wow, there's so many plasmalogens. I just need to eat meat products because if I have them, you know, cows and, you know, chickens will have them. And so, um, but the point is that when you, when you eat plasmalogens from a dietary source, very, very few of it gets into your blood supply. And so- the trick was designing a precursor, kind of how like L-DOPA works for Parkinson's, yeah, right. right? But this works for plasmalogens and we can restore yeah. them and we can target the different types of them. And so now that we do that, um, we can now prove all the research that we've done in animal studies and in cell culture and everything else turns out to be true. And um, we're getting dramatic results in, in the doctors and not just Alzheimer's, we do a lot of work in Parkinson's. I have Parkinson's patients that have gone from complete immobility to shoveling snow um, women with multiple sclerosis with, with optic neuritis, their complete vision been restored. We're getting some pretty crazy results wow. coming back. Um, and even in depression and anxiety, uh, one of my great collaborators in Japan, um, he has a number of patients, works with ALS, and he's got a, a Duchenne's muscular dystrophy patient that he's treating. But um, he's got two women that were um, with Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's, and they reported back to him that it was the mood, their, their depression and anxiety disappeared. So they had mood changes. So the thing with plasmalogens are, they have three main biochemical functions. Okay, so, and it's not that complicated. They're, they're, they're membrane molecules. The human body works with lipid membranes. Um, like you're not a bowl of soup, basically, to help people. Like you have separation and compartmentalization and that's how your body does it. And your neuro- Water in there. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and the, the neurons communicate through synapses. It's like the light switches on your wall. So you have a light switch that connects one wire to another at your light switch. Then you have a long wire that goes in between the walls. It's covered with your, with your coating. That's your axons basically. And so at the switching part, um, that requires plasmalogens and not a small amount of them. Of, uh, it's about 86% of the mole, like of the amount of ethanol means in the synapse are plasmalogens. And if it gets below 75%, uh, neuron transmission goes down. And so that's why we have this. And that's also in the neuromuscular junction. So we, when you increase your plasmalogens, you improve neuromuscular function as well as mm -hmm. not just cholinergic function. See, the cognition in the brain 
as we get older, it's the canary in the coal mine, right? If you take a common stressor on a large group of people, the largest amount will show cognitive decline with aging. But cognitive decline really is just a biomarker of poor brain health with aging. Yeah. You have other issues, right? So some one person might first experience cognitive decline, where someone else might experience, you know, neuromuscular issues, or someone else might ex- ex- see that their depression and anxiety is worse with age that they had before. And so each, when you take a common environmental stressor and you apply it to the complexity of humans, right? You each of us have our own life history, and each of us have our own um, genetic predispositions to a particular disorder. And so the one stress applied to a thousand people will end up with multiple different clinical outcomes. Yeah. And so what we're seeing when we restore plasmalogen levels is that clearly the cognition and the mobility are the number one factors, but there are other issues of um, neurological health that are, that are getting improved. So Dan, could you comment, are there some people who have cognitive decline with normal plasmalogens and some with low plasmalogens and do they respond differently? Or is your sense that pretty much everybody who has cognitive decline has low plasmalogens? Yeah, so the challenge obviously is the separation of your blood from your brain, right? And so the blood data that we've done on thousands and thousands of people clearly indicate that low blood plasmalogens is a bad thing. It it, it has a high level of predictability of of cognitive decline, but even more so in mortality. This is the scary part. Like it's a 30 year difference in lifespan. So a 60... A 65-year-old person with low plasmalogens has the same probability of living to their 70th birthday as a 95-year-old with high plasmalogens has of living to their 100th birthday. And really? so, wow, that is yeah. striking. And that's actually after correcting for the negative health consequences of being demented. So yeah. getting a diagnosis of dementia is a really bad deal. Like it's a, the average people think, oh, you live forever with dementia, but you don't. You know, on average, the time to death from a diagnosis of dementia is five years. Like you'll live longer with a stage two or three colon cancer diagnosis than you will with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And so it's because typically people get to live at home one or two years. Once they get into long-term care, it's nine, you know, a year and a half to two years, and then they're gone. And that unfortunately is the reality. Now, of course, people that have lots of good care and lots of good family support, they'll live longer. There's other ways of getting things. And like what you're doing and trying to remove the negatives of the situation to give the body ability to heal and restore itself, um, these things all become critical aspects of it. But in terms of cognition, plasmalogens, it's, rate, it's, it's core to the cholinergic neuron itself. Yeah. And the weakness of the cholinergic neuron, and this is an interesting thing for people that you know, wonder why it takes scientists so long to figure things out. Because what happens is you, you get one group of scientists in the 70s, it did just an amazing amount of work figuring out this cholinergic hypothesis, right? It was clear. You turn it on, cognition occurs. You turn it off, you get dementia. It was absolutely black and white, but they couldn't fix it. They couldn't understand why is it that this damn cholinergic neuron, okay? And they tried to do everything that we did for L-dopa for Parkinson's. They said, can you get a cholinergic precursor? Like we gave people such high doses of choline and things like that. And the problem with that is that choline is part of all your cells. In Parkinson's, it's dopamine, right? So you only have to hit one cell mass. And even if you bathe the whole body in dopamine, it works type of thing but we couldn't get this to work in, 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 in Alzheimer's disease back then. And then people figured out what was wrong. What was, a, what was the Achilles heel of these cholinergic neurons? And the Achilles heel is this ability to take the neurotransmitter back up called acetylcholine, but it doesn't actually take choline up. It takes acetylcholine, it takes up choline. And there's, there's a special protein called the choline high affinity transporter that's only found on cholinergic neurons. And the weird thing about it is it wasn't, it's on the presynaptic vesicles. It's, it doesn't actually sit on the membrane of the, 
synapse. Like it's not sitting there waiting to, you know, suck up the, the neurotransmitter, like a dopamine or a serotonin thing. And, and so people couldn't figure out what was going on. So it wasn't until like 20 years later in the early 2000s, this group of Ferguson and Blakely showed that this choline high affinity transporter is actually not on the neuron. It's on the vesicle inside the neuron. And so that means it wasn't even there unless, the, unless you get vesicular fusion. Then a whole different group of people were studying membrane physics. Like, like this is what happens in science. You get one group of scientists work, of specialists work in one area and they don't talk to anyone else, right? And they do some really amazing work. And so they figured out that this membrane fusion really required plasmalogens. Like if you, any, any disruption in plasmalogen composition in the membrane, these, these uh, membranes didn't fuse. They just, they, these vesicles, these little balloons full of neurotransmitters would come to the, vessel, the, the wall and just stick there. They wouldn't fuse out. And so what happens then, if you have a plasmalogen deficiency, is that it's actually preventing the cholinergic neuron from getting its choline back. And there's huge amounts of data showing that if that ever happens, the neuron basically uh, eats itself. It, 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 it takes choline from the, the membrane structure. And that's also what gives the brain, brain shrinkage. So yes. plasmalogens, not just in proving membrane fusion and neuro, neurotransmission, plasmalogen deficiency actually starves cholinergic neurons from their, their, their neurotransmitter. And that's so when we do post-mortem data, the correlation between plasmalogen levels in the brain and cognition, like with the Rush study, is just, it's crazy. It's, you know, for every small change in plasmalogen levels in the brain, dementia goes up five times. And it's much, much more associated with cognitive decline than say amyloid or mm -hmm. tau or um, flotillin, which is a lipid rafts, like the cholesterol rich regions. So these membrane structure things are, are important. So that's okay. the kind of the, the key thing in cognition. And then the other big aspect is, is inflammation. Um, is uh, we other part of this clinical trial was we measured a bunch of inflammation biomarkers, especially oxidative stress like uh, aldehydes and um, C-reactive protein. And people have people might remember catalase and superoxide dismutase. People on your in your group that looks at inflammation and plasmalogens. The reason why we lose plasmalogens is that they're they actually get consumed. People think about antioxidants like um, like coenzyme Q10, right? So a lot of the antioxidants that we think of as antioxidants, I call them basically hot potato holders. Like they hold these electrons for a little while, but they don't actually neutralize them. And they just kind of hold them for a little while until someone else takes care of them. Plasmalogens actually get broken up in the process. When, it, when the plasmalogens actually physically, chemically react with, with peroxides and they get broken up and consumed, like, a, like blowing a fuse essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and the body says, no big deal. That's what they're there for. They're there to blow a fuse and then we'll make a whole bunch more. So you make a whole bunch of them. And normally you make more than you need and you have that balance. And that's, you know, the issue. And that's what, with the APOE4 that Julie and I talked about a week or so ago is one of the issues with the APOE4 community is that they, they, they're more dependent than the other genotypes for that plasmalogen counterbalance. Yeah. And, that's, and that's why it, it reveals itself with an age profile of where the, you know, the, the genetic risk factor becomes exposed um, later in life, and it correlates with that the decrease in plasmalogen levels in the general population, yeah. and that's why and that's why people that have really good health profiles are are less likely to have um, an effect with the APOE4 genotype. Yeah, so uh, we hear a lot about good fats and bad fats, you know, with especially with respect to things like inflammation and things like cognitive decline. We hear a lot about omega threes and omega sixes, and you had said before we came on that these plasmalogens you can have some that are omega threes, some that are omega nines. Could you talk a little bit about where each of those fits in? 
Yeah, so people, like the whole essential fatty acid community is, is pretty interesting. But really, I mean, if you simplify it down, there's really only four fatty acids that really matter to human physiology. The rest of them are really bit players on the stage. We have two that we get from regular plant sources, omega-9, like oleic acid from olive oil. And your body uses that virtually unchanged for the most part. And it uses it for the connective tissue and the white matter, like the protective coating of your axons. And then you have your omega-6 that gets a bad name. We get from corn, soy, and canola, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a pro-inflammatory one, but it is really a critical essential fatty acid. It's kind of your, you know, your Swiss army knife fatty acid, because it can act like an omega-9, but it can also act as an omega-3. Now, where people get confused with the omega-3 system is that there's really only one omega-3 that matters, and that's DHA. Um, and that's the, what's the predominant omega-3 of your membranes. And that's what separates us from plants. So what makes animals different from plants is fluidity in their membranes. And that's called these long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the one that your body wants to use predominantly is DHA and your body and you make it yourself. Mm -hmm. Then it has a backup plan because DHA is hard to make. You, it takes a lot of steps and then it goes into the peroxisome for its final process. So your body has a backup plan if you don't get enough DHA. And the backup plan is arachidonic acid. And that comes from the omega-6. So most of us in our current health program we get bombarded with excess omega-6 and not enough omega-3 in our diet. So right. the DHA to arachidonic acid ratio is in the wrong direction. And that's where the inflammation yeah. issue happens. And so that's where, so DHA, so plasmalogens, the omega-3 DHA, that's your, that's the one that controls your reverse cholesterol transport. So let's say people understand uh, atherosclerosis and you've got the foamy macrophages and you want to get rid of cholesterol. It's a DHA plasmalogens that are involved there. And in the brain, the biologically active, the synapses really need DHA plasmalogens. That's the number one priority. And so they're very, very dynamic. Omega-9 creates an entirely different biochemical structure. It, it creates myelin sheath, which is basically like plastic coating over copper wire. It's there to really be protective. And that's what happens in autism and multiple sclerosis, uh, concussion, brain injury. So all inflammatory diseases of the brain are fundamentally a white matter, omega-9 plasmalogen issue. Two things, mitochondrial function, you know, you keep your N-acetylcysteine and carnitine because all inflammation, fundamentally every, all inflammation comes from the mitochondria, 100% of all inflammation, whether it's a viral infection, whether it's a bacterial infection, whether it's, doesn't matter what it is. It, it's all fundamentally, it's a mitochondrial insufficiency drives all inflammation. And then you have, so plasmalogens um, don't, they can help the mitochondrial membrane, but really what they do is they, they reduce that chemoattractant signal. So that's kind of where, uh, so the omega-9, is for the, the protective coatings, you know, of your of your axons, and uh, omega three is for your. So that's why we have protom neuro, which right. is kind of for active. It's I say neuro is for performance. It improves your neuromuscular junction activity, improves sarcopenia. So in this clinical trial, we had a dramatic improvement, like in the sit stand. So it was a very simple test that we use for sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting and aging, and it's a thirty second sit stand test. Basically, a person sits on a chair, and you have a timer stopwatch and you say, okay, stand up and sit down as many times as you can in 30 seconds and you count. Wow. Okay. And then typically people can go from 10 to 30, depending upon how active they are after four months on plasmalogens. So the, the clinical trial was an escalating dose. The first mm -hmm. month was one bottle. It comes in a bottle with 30 mils in it, which is basically if you have one mil per day, one bottle lasts you one month. And so the first month, everyone took one bottle a month. And then the second month and third month, they took one bottle every two weeks. So they doubled the dose. And last month they took one bottle every week. So it's four mils per day. Right. And then we had a washout period, but we had people with, they had three to four to five more sit stands within only a four week period. 
So of the 22 people, we had 12 people that had significant mobility improvements and wasn't even on our radar because this was really fundamentally a, a dose binding study. We were just doing escalating dose biomarkers and so on. And we had a number of people that had complete um, improvements on their clinical dementia ratings, the entire score. And we didn't have just mild Alzheimer's. We had um, the mild, all the way up to moderate uh, CDR of two, the, the highest score is a CDR of three. But some of these patients went down to CDRs of one and 0.5 to zeros um, in only wow. a four month period of time. So it was pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very encouraging program. So yeah. we're expanding on that. So that's, so, so neuro is for performance and glia is for protection. So younger people that have um, say autism, which is a white matter uh, hype issue, you know, when you want to reduce inflammation of the brain, you know, the glia plus mitochondrial support is the mm -hmm. main, main protocol. But if you want to improve performance, like all of us old people, the three of us sitting here, is that we want our brains to work better and we want our muscles to work better. And we want to, and so we need the DHA version, but they can, uh, but you can balance them either way. Yeah. And so in your, in your studies, uh, what sorts of subjective improvements did people notice? Were people doing better with navigation? Were people doing better with memory? Were they, what sorts of things did they or their well, partners notice? The memory for sure. But the yeah. interesting thing is energy. People felt more awake and aware and they mm -hmm. felt much higher levels of energy. Um, eye function, um, people notice that their night vision comes back. Me personally, um, my biggest personal observation was in my vision at first. I don't need glasses anymore for four feet. I've always been farsighted, so nearsighted. I've always needed glasses for driving, playing yeah. hockey and so on and so forth as a kid. But um, I can't wear glasses now for in, within a four foot radius. I don't need them anymore. Um, and so that was a major improvement for me. The people mentioned um, mood, like they feel better yeah. on it. Um, and so that's probably the GABAergic system being improved upon yeah. um, in some people. But really it depends on the... Like, so in a person that doesn't have a clinical disease like myself, muscularity, like I'm in my early fifties, I'm actually stronger than I was in my twenties and thirties. And my recovery time from working out, it's like, it's unanticipated. I wasn't expecting it. Um, like I do 50 push-ups, I can wait five seconds, 10 seconds, I do 50 more like the first 50. And I go, this is stupid. I couldn't do this when I was 20 and 30. And so, and then there's no muscle pain anymore. I, I just don't wow. have the muscle pain anymore. So it's working at that neuromuscular junction. So it's a really simple molecule and it's been deficient in us for so many years, mm -hmm. even super athletes. Like I did Ben Greenfield's blood test before and after, and it's on our website and he did it on his, like he's a super athlete. And sometimes these super athletes, they overwork out. They don't give their body enough time to recover between times. Yeah. So people always think exercise is good for you. Right. And I tell people, no, exercise is not good for you. Exercise is bad for you. Recovering from exercise. Now that's what's good for you. Okay. And so, and so you want to make sure you recover from it because the goal is to create a biochemical reserve capacity or a functional reserve capacity. Like if you go running and whatnot, you, what you're doing is you're increasing your, your reserve capacity for oxygen utilization in your mitochondria. And it's not, you don't do that for the days that you run, you do that for the days that you don't run. So the days that you're just walking and doing grocery shopping and whatnot, now you're, you're just humming, you're, 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 you're operating far below your capacity because you've built reserve capacity on the days that you're working out for the days that you're not working out. And so okay. same thing if you're lifting weights, you know, it's not for when you're lifting weights, it's for when you're cooking in the kitchen and you're getting groceries and, and all of a sudden you've created this reserve capacity of strength. So th the purpose of exercise and even, you know, is, is for the days that you're not exercising and it's to build reserve capacity for, and biochemistry is the same way. And so that's why we're dealing with, with plasmalogens, mitochondrial support structure is to create that kind of, you know, reserve capacity. Yeah. You know, people talk about homocysteine and methyltransferase and your membrane lipids and mitochondrial function. There's some pretty basic, simple things that we can do 
to put the body in a in a with a savings account. Yeah. And that's kind of what, what we focus on. And so, Dan, we hear a lot about different things that create cognitive decline that contribute. We've talked about lack of sleep and we've talked about stress and you know, processed food. And you mentioned inflammation, and so many of these different things. Are there certain ones of these that have a, a, a larger impact on plasmalogen levels or do all of these things impact them? I think they all impact them and they have their own independent issues themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. The big thing people, methyltransferase is a really a big deal. We, we typically measure homocysteine. We want to get them under 10, yeah. but sometimes we don't measure them the right way because we can trick the biomarker test and people it's biomarkers are exactly what they are. They're biomarkers. They're there to tell you what's going on behind the curtain so you can fix them. In the brain, methyltransferase is really critical. It, it, it controls the amyloid precursor delivery to the enzymes. It controls the tau formation. So the other classical hallmark of Alzheimer's is neurofibrillary tangles, right? right. And it's caused by phosphorylation of a tau protein. Right. Most people, we, hear, we float these words around, but people don't really know what they mean. Tau is a really critical molecule. It's, your, it's what your body uses to accelerate or, uh, organelle transport. It's like squeezing, tau is what the neurons use to, to squeeze mitochondria down the tube of the axon. And it's like, you, if you grab a fist and you squeeze your fist, you squeeze it, you, you push these organelles because these axons are very long distances. Yeah. But the problem is that in order for that hand to relax, you need methyltransferase. And so, so uh, low folate, um, low B12, B6 yeah. are highly correlated with um, tau formation. Also they correlate with amyloid. So that's why tau and amyloid kind of go hand in hand in so many ways. Yeah. Inflammation, like you said, is a big deal. Glucose regulation is an inflammation go hand in hand. Um, for the brain and and so like your and your vascular issues like so cerebral vascular disease stroke micro infarcts those type of things they yeah. contribute dramatically um yeah so they all have their own it's um when you look at reserve capacity you have to share like so if all your plasmalogens are being used to fight inflammation they're not enough left over there for your for neurological right. function right and so you, your body doesn't we, we put the body as a black box, but it's not, it's it still, it still has to follow the basic rules, simple law of thermodynamics. We don't, nothing yeah. can be created or yeah. destroyed. So the human body doesn't exist on sunlight and water and carbon dioxide. So it, everything you see came in. Okay. Yeah. And it came into you and it was transformed. And so that's what your body does. It moves these atoms and electrons around and makes stuff. And, yeah. um, and if we're not feeding the right things in the right proportions, we're not going to get the outcomes we want. Fantastic. All right. This is great. And maybe Julie, could you, Maybe you and Dan talk a little bit about your own experience with plasmalogens, measuring them and what and uh, the status. What, what did you find out? Right. So I've been taking the supplement for almost two years now. And unlike other people in our community, I didn't notice a big difference. But in interestingly, Dan, my near vision is perfect. And I'm only wearing readers now because I have contacts on for my distance vision. But when I take my contacts out, my near vision is perfect. And it didn't used to be. The thing that I've noticed with members of our community who are using the supplement is people who get a really definitive positive reaction are people who are generally not following your protocol, Dale. They're people that you know don't have insulin sensitivity, they're not right. exercising, and people who are following the protocol um, maybe don't notice a dramatic difference. That being said, I believe in Dr. Goodnow's science, and this is one of the holes in my book that I plan to patch, and yeah. I'll be taking the supplement for life. 
Yeah. yeah. And just for the record, like we have a lot of people that are on the Bredesen protocol that come through our blood testing capabilities here at Prodrome. And by and large, they have the healthier pro programs than normal people. So the protocol is working and I can tell you why it's working. Okay. Especially the intermittent fasting. Okay. And certain keto people forget the human body is designed to sh shift gears from the fed state to the fasting state every day. And it's normally in days gone by when the sun went down, you'd stop eating at a certain point in time. And then you'd have a long fasting period of time. It's the fasting period at nighttime that your body uses to rebuild things. And it's when your body shifts from a glycolysis state to a lipolysis state. And so when you're in lipolysis, that turns on mitochondrial beta oxidation, turns on peroxisomal beta oxidation. And so a good fasting routine gets your triglycerides low, which is very, very healthy. So if you're in a proper fasting and you are having a good um, dietary glucose regulation program, your body is going to be turning on at night for fatty acid beta oxidation. And that's where plasmalogens are also made. And that's also important for your sleep regulation. Okay, methyltransferase, okay, makes your melatonin, makes your, so that requires um, the, your homocysteine system working properly. And so inflammation counteracts that. Late night snacking is one of the worst unhealthy things that we can do for life because it disrupts that daily fasting routine. People should be fasting. And as we get older, we need to fast longer. So when we're younger, we use up our energy, right? So our glycolysis gets done quickly. And so a couple hours after a meal, we're already in the fasting state. But when we get older, it takes longer for the body to get into that fasting state. And that's also what drives cancer, okay? Cancer can't exist in a fasting cell. Cancer can only exist in a glycolytic cell. And so we, as we get older, fasting becomes far, far more important. Um, and it takes us longer to get into that. Yeah, we've got some great questions here. Let's get into those. Uh, Dan, you have a couple more minutes to go through these questions? Absolutely. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, and uh, so first one here, Dr. Ram Rao's asking, uh, and Ram has worked uh, on uh, neurodegeneration uh, with me for years. He mentions the, the, the protocol and the various things that, that are important, detoxification, sleep, exercise, physical, mental activity, et cetera. Um, he's also a, an Ayurvedic physician. Um, now, he said, where would plasmalogens fit into this picture? And I think you've already mentioned some of this, certainly with respect to uh, you know, overall health and resilience and that sort of thing. It says, do you think the above interventions would be improving plasmalogen levels? So it sounds like what you're saying is people who are already doing the protocol do tend to have a better overall profile than those who are ignoring it. Yeah, for example, my dad, okay, he's in his mid 80s now. He's an E4 carrier. He functions as a 60 year old man. So he is a highly functional individual. And I didn't have these supplements available for him when I first started getting plasmalogens up and running. And so you can have a diet and exercise program. So fasting, resistance training with proper rest, um, and then proper supplementation that reduces the plasmalogen consumption load. Okay, yeah. so if you have a limited amount of plasmalogens that you make, you don't want to be wasting them. And so you want your, you have a, an anti inflammatory protocol like N-acetylcysteines and the carnitines, the omega-3 program. Um, and so these things can all contribute to, if you can reduce your inflammation load, you're gonna reduce the depletion of your plasmalogens. But it ultimately comes down to like a vitamin D story, right? Now, Julie is not a good example because she has superhuman biochemical profile, just for the record. And so, cause it was quite amazing, actually. It was like, I, I have it on my refrigerator, just, just joking. Um, so it's, um, so, but it's like a vitamin D story, right? So if, you, if you're at the right latitude and you spend enough time outside, you can make enough vitamin D, but it's very, very difficult to maintain enough. And right. the level, and at the end, like her attitude is the right attitude. When you look at the data, it's just not worth the risk. Like yeah. it is theoretically possible to, to get enough of these things, but why it's, it's helpful period. Yeah. And so, and so that's kind of bottom line on, on the plasmalogen situation and yeah. it frees up other aspects. And so that's why people that the fossil lipid stories, like you want your, you want to take your lecithins and colines because you, you need to make them. We don't take enough creatine in the elderly an easy part of their program. Cause that really also helps their, their methyltransferase system. So there's really basic stuff that we can do to help people. 
Absolutely. And then what about, uh, see, Raji asked, where do we get plasmalogen since it's not absorbable from animal meats? Um, obviously, you've created a precursor, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, what, do you, what is the best way to get these? Um, basically, on our website, prodrome.com. Okay. Um, you can get the plasmalogens on the website there and you get blood testing if, if you want to get deeper down the rabbit hole of your biochemical health. And so that's kind of what we do. And it's complementary to other things that you're doing in your, yeah. in your life. So prodrome for everyone, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-E.com. Uh, uh, take a look at that. Uh, and, and if you want the detailed biochemistry, like I talked some, some of these things, but at drgoodnow.com, I got educational videos with actual reference data and all the detailed literature reference in, in epidemiological data. So people can dig as deep as you wish to go. Yeah. Um, and Lucy asks, what specifically helped improve your night vision? Obviously, you were talking about plasmalogen. She mentioned, what about increased DHA? Uh, could you say something about the relationship between, so if people are taking more DHA or taking more fish, does that affect their plasmalogens or not? I think it's it has in the past because DHA okay, is also a proxosome proliferator agonist receptor agonist. So it, it actually stimulates peroxisomal function. Yeah. And so, and that's one of the benefits. And so when, when people say omega-3 reduces triglyceride levels, how omega-3s reduce triglyceride levels is because they're actually PPAR alpha agonists and they improve basically like a fibrate. They're basically a natural fibrate, if you will, in a certain degree. So yeah, so those things are good. And so people have tried in the absence, if you can stimulate peroxisomal function, you can actually make some plasmalogens. So that's about, that is a benefit, just not enough. Right. And so the supplement that we have, with the neuro, it has high levels of DHA. It's a very, very bioavailable DHA source because DHA in the brain has to come from free DHA in the blood. Um, so you don't get it through the regular triglyceride structure. And then also phospholipids share their DHA. So with the prodrome neuro, you can pretty well subtract out your omega-3 from that because it provides you highly bioavailable DHA. And Melissa asked, is this supplement already part of the protocol? So as we've always said, we're agnostic, whatever helps the most. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so interested in plasmalogens, especially with your recent study. Um, and we've had some people like Julie, obviously, um, who are taking this and others who are not. Uh, so the, you know, the question is, should everyone be evaluating it and then going on it if, you know, if uh, they are low? Do you have a specific cutoff where you say, you know, people should definitely be on these if they're lower than X, or is your sense that basically everyone should be on plasmalogens? Yeah. So in the clinical trial, we did not segregate people based upon their baseline plasmalogens. It was completely okay. random. And we found of the nine people that had a complete improvement of a CDR score rating, five had low plasmalogens, four had regular to normal plasmalogens. Hmm. And so we know epidemiologically that the low levels predict future decline. Right. But if you're but if you're experiencing symptoms, the base like the blood levels are not relevant to recovery. Because the, the the supplement isn't a plasmalogen, it's a precursor. So you get, you get a pulsing, you get, it does two things. When you first take the supplement as a precursor, it goes in every single cell of your body and allows those cells to make plasmalogens. And that phase acts about 12 hours, maximizes in the two to four hour range. And then it gets converted to the final plasmalogen, which causes your blood levels to elevate. And that allows your cells to collect the plasmalogens from the blood supply or make it themselves. And so every day with the plasmalogen precursor, you're actually pulsing it into your cells for them to make it on demand. Um, and which is important for your, your microglia, your oligodendrocytes, and your Schwann cells, because that those cells don't have the same type of vascularization, if you will. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. And then uh, let's see, Russ is asking, do you know when your study will be published? Um, we're working on writing it up right now. I just got crazy schedule. So we're, we're yeah. putting it together right yes. now. Yeah. We know you're incredibly busy with all the stuff going on and we really appreciate your time. Um, so let's see, uh, omega-3, you just uh, addressed that actually. 
Uh, and um, let's see, Melissa's asking, does DHEA cover DHA? And of course, those are quite different. Um, and I don't know if you want to say something about DHEA versus DHA. No, I see people asking about multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. Let me yeah. comment on those. MS is an interesting disease. Um, it's almost like girls who don't get autism get MS and they get their symptoms reduced during the proestrous cycle. And usually they're relapsing remitting till menopause. And then post-menopause, typically we see the transition into secondary progressives. So glia and neuro combination is what doctors have been getting the best results for. And then you can escalate the dose until you see effects. Um, for younger people, I like to stick with the glia for the most part. Yeah. Parkinson's is an interesting story. I originally thought, because there's a lot of white matter issues with Parkinson's that the, and we see the neuro in animal studies reduces L-dopa induced dyskinesias, but it's clear that the neuro is the, is the preferred version in Parkinson's. And we get escalating dose. Like we've had some dramatic reversals of people that have had complete restoration of mobility um, mm. in this. And you, sometimes you get to a higher dose up to four mils per day, and then you can bring it back down again. Same thing with Alzheimer's. I got a couple of really late stage Alzheimer's patients uh, one of the patients was really bad, couldn't function, was going to the bathroom in the, in the closet. Police were called out because they were wandering. Um, the woman, wife was just at her wit's end. Um, they're basically having a life now. He gets up, he dresses himself, has breakfast with her. Uh, and so, but he needs the, the, the four meals. Like, so she's four bottles a month. Yeah. So there is a dose finding effect um, and everyone is personal. And this is a good point in terms of what Dale does and what we do. Pe people should expect success. And you should move like, and if it's working, keep doing it right. and, and, and then look for another solution to it. Cause it could be a negative issue. It could be like, you could have all the things in your favor and you might be missing one thing. Like I've, I've seen people that are super healthy and you get a blood test and they have no choline in their blood for some reason, like they're yeah. phosphocholine, like they're on some strange vegetarian diet and they're getting no choline. Okay. And so I say, get some sunflower lecithin or something and, and start putting it in your, your salads. And so there's certain things that we want to look for, you know, boogeymen under the bed that you otherwise would not notice. Um, and then we can fix those things. Yeah. We always tell people keep optimizing because yes. there are always more things uh, to find. And I know Julie's been through this with her own situation. Um, and they're asking you here also, Julie, about what you're on. Are you taking the neuro or the glial? I'm taking the uh, neuro. I'm doing about not even a full mill a day, maybe 0. 0.75. Okay. And then uh, George is asking uh, Dr. Goodno, uh, uh, would the prodrome glia or neuro be most appropriate for a Parkinson's patient? I would stick with neuro. Like I take two, two mils of neuro a day. That's my basic dose. That's what I have my family on. It seems to be the best in the clinical trial data that we just ran the escalating dose. Mm -hmm. Two seems to be really optimal. Um, it keeps okay. levels up and, um, and then you can mix and match with the, the glia. Like people that have like, so ulcerative colitis, bowel disease issues, the glia has a much more calming effect. Um, yeah. on that. And then, you know, in combination with certain probiotics, it can, it can be very beneficial. All right. Then just two last ones here. One asking about cerebral amyloid angiopathy, where of course you can get the micro bleeds and of course, low bar ma macro bleeds as well. Um, Tim is asking what about whether, you know, is this an issue with uh, plasmalogens? I know that obviously when you get these very high omega six or omega three to omega sixes ratio, so you get down with these six to three of less than 0.5, it is associated with increased cerebral hemorrhage. Do you have any concern about giving plasmalogens to someone who has a history of amyloid angiopathy? Um, well, I would look at their omega-3 profile. Yeah. And if they have really, really high DHA to begin with, then just give them the glia. And so now yeah. you get the omega-9. And that's a really good question because there's a balance. Autism is a great example in multiple sclerosis. So when you take a blood sample from an autistic or MS patient, you'll actually see that they'll have higher than normal plasmalogen levels in their blood. And it's because of mitochondrial failure and insufficiency. So when the mitochondria fail, it doesn't do a job. And the fatty acids that are supposed to be processed by the mitochondria get pushed into the peroxisomes and turns them on. 
So autistic children actually have higher than normal plasmalgin levels, levels in their terminal fields, like at the synapse level. And that's why they have a bunch of this neurite outgrowth, but these neurites don't make good connections. The problem is the white matter tracks, and that's the omega-9 plasmalogens. And so if you see someone with really, really high DHA plasmalogen or DHA levels, um, omega-9, so the proton glia is 100% omega-9. So in combination, the two of them dilute your omega-6 pool out if you want to. I wouldn't be so much concerned about low arachidonic acid levels because you really don't need them that much. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned about not having enough omega-9. Yeah. And Linda is asking about uh, whether you think they, this may benefit dysautonomia. I don't even know what that is. What is dysautonomia? So people have autonomic and it can be, um, it, it can be an autoimmune issue or it can be a degenerative issue. Um, so, and there's uh, this is like, shy, so shy Drager is what used to be called. Okay. It's a Parkinson's variant where you have some degeneration of the, uh, of the autonomic nervous system. Um, and they tend to get, you know, they, they tend to get things like orthostatic hypotension, things like that. So any kind of autoimmune inflammatory disease is definitely dramatically benefited from this because yeah. what it does is it reduces the chemoattractant signal of the macrophages and the inflammation cascade. So a lot of these diseases, so all autoimmune diseases are mitochondrial fundamentally, okay? The mitochondrial weakness. And so you're, if I take two seconds on this, I know people bore people well. The human body is fundamentally a hybrid electric car, okay? We burn hydrocarbons. We get, we get we, into carbon dioxide. And we use that energy from burning a hydrocarbon to charge a battery, just like your lead battery in your car. But this is called a proton gradient in your mitochondrial electron transport chain. And that proton gradient is fundamentally a battery and it runs the ATP pump. And that's how the body runs. And you have this disconnection between the two of them. And so what happens if the mitochondria can't, and it's electrons, it's, it's a highly electrochemical charged environment. And if you get stress, if you get glutamate, like um, diabetes, or you get a bacterial infection, or you get an autoimmune disease, the inflammation is designed to kill cells and so that the inflammatory macrophage is there to clean up the mess. The problem with autoimmune is that the surrounding healthy cells get somewhat slightly damaged and the inflammation spreads. It becomes like a forest fire and it'll burn outwards until it uses up all the available fuel. And so by improving mitochondrial, so there's, two, there's three areas that you can arrest inflammation in the body. One is at the mitochondrial level itself. People talk about glutathione and N-acetylcysteine, CoQ10, all those things that we do to, and N-acetyl and carnitine is really important. If you can prevent the electrons from leaking out of the cell, you prevent inflammation, period. Okay, Most, autism and MS, these are diseases where a little bit of inflammation spreads from its focal point. The second point that we can reduce inflammation is at the membrane structure. So once these electrons get spit out of the cell, um, you have enzymes outside of your cell that are used to neutralize them, like superoxide dismutase and catalase and glutathione peroxidase. These are designed to prevent these nasty things from um, actually making your cells rancid, because that's fundamentally what you do, is you get rancid oil on the outside of your cells. And this rancid oil on the outside of your cells is the chemoattracted signal for the macrophages. I tell people, the cells of your body are like your neighborhood. Like you really don't know what's going on in your neighbor's home until a chair comes flying out a window and lines in the front lawn. Okay, and you say, oh, oh my God, something's going on over there. And then the police come and they isolate the situation so it doesn't spread beyond the one house. That's what your macrophages do. And so, and that's peroxidation. Plasmalogens block that. So when you have effective plasmalogens, they neutralize all of that peroxidation. And so it reduces a chemoattracted signal. So the macrophages don't even, it cleans up the mess before the macrophages and the microglia come attracting to it. And then you have the third thing, which is most drug activities, right? We, we with steroids and with, uh, biologics, we try to suppress the immune T cell responses and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so you have two mechanisms and what your anti-inflammatory mechanisms, like your protocols, Dale, like when you're talking about, um, reducing inflammation, you're really reducing those two 
front ends. You're reducing inflammation from the inside out. And that's yeah. what you want to do. And hopefully re re removing the pathogens and things that are causing the inflammation to begin with. So one final question stress. before we go, I can't help, but you said something really uh, provocative and interesting, um, which was to relate MS to autism. So could you just talk for a moment about the relationship? Uh, what is the similarity here? What's the, what is the uh, common path here in autism and MS? Yeah, they're basically the same disease. So what differentiates the gender bias in pre-pubertal boys and girls is the circulating levels of beta estradiol in boys. About 25% of boys will have girl levels of beta estradiol and about 25% of girls have boy levels. Mm -hmm. And women have much higher levels of neuroprotection than men due to beta estradiol. And beta estradiol is a very potent neuroprotectant. And it basically allows girls to spit lactic acid out of their cells, whereas boys can't. And it's monocarboxylic acid transporter is what happens, okay? And so when boys have, uh, when boys or girls, it's maternally transmitted because it's mitochondrial. The, if you have a mitochondrial weakness, then as the inflammatory environment that we live in gets worse and worse, more and more, this exposes more and more mitochondrial insufficiencies. And so that's why boys get affected. And women also can, they have much better generally social skills. So they can basically hide their autism better than boys can. Just like we have issues in the elderly, men have a better way of tricking cognition tests versus females as a general rule. We have a harder time sometimes getting them, but there's much better tools now, as you know. But so as, we, as you, when you fast forward to MS, MS is a mitochondrial disease. Um, and so now you have this issue where, you know, not obviously all women who don't get M autism get MS, but it's the same disease, it's mitochondrial insufficiency. And so when they get a triggering event, that triggers inflammation. In normal people, you get an inflammatory event, it rises, your body deals with it, and it goes away. But in autism and MS, inflammation never goes away. A 45-year-old autistic man in autopsy will have the same level of neural inflammation as a nine-year-old boy. So their inflammation stays the same virtually their entire life. And what changes is their ability to compensate and, and, and adapt to it. And so a lot of their behaviors are adaptive. And so in MS, that's why women, when they get pregnant, um, they, their MS symptoms typically go away during pregnancy when they're pro-estrous. And that's also why MS transitions into secondary progressive, mostly during menopause. So that's obviously broad strokes. There's always individualities right. within them, but as a general rule, that's bottom line. And that's why carnitines and N-acetylcysteines, these things have all had benefits um, in either energy or MS act activated issues. So those are basic features of, of, the, of the diseases. Yeah, excellent. Very, that's fascinating. Dan, this was a, really a tour de force. Thank you so much for the discussions. Thanks for your biochemical insights, your many years of tremendous research. And I hope that uh, you know, many people are going to benefit from knowing their status on this and then ultimately for improving it based on what you've developed. So thank you so much. You're very for, welcome. Uh, letting us know about your trial and we look forward to, uh, to seeing that.